0: Well, hello, I'm Mike. I'm the interim pastor here at Grace Church. And for you who are watching online, welcome to this place. I trust that you are doing well. And we're going to continue today to study the book of Hebrews. We have been in Hebrews now for about nine weeks. This is week 10 in our study of this book. It's, it's deep, it's rich, it's full of a lot of stuff. And you're going to see this morning that uh, we're particularly challenged with Hebrews 8 and 9. Today I'm going to try to give you an overview of Hebrews 8 and 9 and you'll see why in just a little bit. But let me first begin with a bit of review. For those of you who haven't been part of this study, uh, it would be helpful to know kind of where we are in the flow of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to primarily a, a group of Jewish followers of Jesus back in the first century, sometime prior to 70 A.D. And um, these people were uh, under pressure to compromise their faith. Because they were being persecuted. It was a time of terrible persecution of Christians. Emperor Nero was on the throne of Rome and he had instituted a policy by which Christians were going to be persecuted and suffer for their faith. Some even died because of their faith in Jesus. And so because of this pressure, some of the family members and friends of these Jewish Christians were telling them, why in the world are you continuing to follow Jesus when it creates such trouble for you? Why don't you come back to the old ways, you know, you Jewish believers? Why don't you come back to the temple? Come back to following Father Abraham and, in, and following the practices of the Old Testament and that kind of thing. And the writer of this book of Hebrews is writing these people saying, no, don't do that. Don't go back because Jesus is greater than anything you might have had under the Old Testament system. Uh, We've seen in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than all of these famous heroes from the past. He's greater than the angels, chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He's greater than Joshua, chapter 4. He is a greater high priest than all of the Old Testament priests that descended from Aaron. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you, why would you go back and put yourself under the Old Testament system when Jesus is so much greater and so much superior to them? Well, last week, if you were here, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7 and we continued talking about the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. We saw in chapter 7 that because Jesus is our high priest, we have a better hope, a better hope than did people in former times. Well, today we're going to continue that theme of Jesus being our great high priest. And that's the topic of Hebrews 8 and 9. We're going to see today that because Jesus is our great high priest, he has given us a new and better covenant. Just like Charlie was talking to those boys earlier. A new and better covenant than people had in former times. So basically the author is continuing to say, why would you return to the old system? Don't go back. Don't look back, but look forward. Press on by faith. Now you might wonder, why are we as a church looking at this book of Hebrews? And the reason that I selected this as our study is that Grace Church is in a time of pressure as well. Not only is our culture putting pressure on all believers in Jesus and telling us, you guys are crazy, you're out of your minds, why would you follow this outmoded religion? You know. Not only that though, this church is in a time of decision making in the terms of the future. What's going to happen in the future? What kind of pastor is this church going to have? And so on. These are big decisions. And so God is using the book of Hebrews, I hope, in your life and in our life corporately to say, don't look back. Let's look forward. The better days of Grace Church are still in front of us. And so let's press on by faith. One of the things, though, that keeps people, people who are Christians, from pressing on by faith is discouragement. This past week, I spoke with three different people who are very, very discouraged. Let me tell you about them. One was a man whose life has been turned upside down by troubles that he's been going through in his church. Another person I talked to, a student at the seminary where I work, her sister has just announced that she is gay. She's just come out and it's obviously thrown her and her whole family into a new and a sad and a very confusing place. And she's very discouraged. And this, this third person is a man whose wife, he's a good friend of mine, and I had breakfast with him back last Tuesday. His wife has been struggling with the most agonizing migraine headaches. She's had them for over 20 years. And my friend just told me that this past week her headaches were worse than ever. They've tried doctors. They've tried medication. They've tried all these different things, all to no avail, and no help seems to be in sight. So he, too, is discouraged. Discouragement is everywhere we look. It's probably in people that you know. You've probably met with somebody this past week who is discouraged. And I do not doubt that someone in the room this morning is discouraged. So the question is, where do you go with that? What do you do? When you're discouraged, because it is a very common problem that we have. Do you go to the refrigerator, (laughs) you know, for another piece of pie or a scoop of ice cream or another glass of wine? Or maybe you seek solace in work or entertainment or video games or social media or shopping. Some of the distractions of modern times. Or do you just fold in on yourself and get more blue with every passing moment? You know, those are some of the common reactions that people have toward discouragement. Well, our text this morning, Hebrews 8 and 9, offers us a better way to deal with discouragement. And that is, if you're discouraged, and certainly the people to whom this letter was originally written were discouraged, then what you need to do is think about the New Covenant. The new covenant, that is the answer to our discouragement. Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 8 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, now having that background, let's dive in. I'm going to read the entire chapter 8. And then later you're going to see that we'll touch on some of these verses and some of the ones in chapter 9 also. So listen carefully to God's Word, Hebrews chapter 8. He says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. Isn't that a nice way to begin the chapter? (laughs) You know, if you've been lost so far, he kind of says, Okay, here's where I'm going. Here's what I mean. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy. Hear what Charlie said earlier to the kids. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God indeed. Now, we're going to talk about the new covenant and later I'm going to be asking you to look at this sheet of paper. Did everybody pick this up at the door? I hope so. If not, don't be embarrassed to go over and step over and pick one up. It's a chart that I'm going to refer to later. But for now... I want to ask you, do you know what the New Covenant is all about? It's probably not a term that you think about a lot or talk about very much, although I hope after today you will begin to think about it a lot more. Um, Maybe that term New Covenant doesn't have a lot of meaning. So what I want to do is give you an overview of Hebrews 8 and 9. There's such a massive amount of information in these two chapters. It's just too much for any one or even two or a short sermon series. Um, I listened to a sermon a couple of days ago on Hebrews 8 that had 17 points. How would you like a 17-point sermon this morning? <laughs> it, it deserves that. I mean, it, it, there's just so much here that it's impossible to give a neat little tidy three-point sermon on this. And we don't really have time to do these two chapters justice. But um, what if, if I accomplish nothing more than giving you a framework... Kind of an overview or an outline by which you can then read chapters eight and nine and understand them a little bit better. So let's begin with a definition. Let's go back to the very beginning of this topic and talk about what is a covenant. Now, everybody in the room this morning is familiar with covenants. Uh, does anybody here live in a subdivision that has an HOA? We do. Um, An HOA, if you've got a homeowner's association, you have certain covenant restrictions about what you can and cannot do around your house. And you probably complain about your HOA, which we do too. Um, If you are married or if you are engaged to be married, you know what a covenant promise to your bride or to your groom is all about. That is a covenant. If you've ever taken out a loan, you've signed a contract to pay off that loan in a certain amount of time. That contract was a covenant. So basically a covenant is an agreement, like Charlie said to the kids. It's a commitment containing certain promises and certain obligations. And that's not a bad definition of a covenant when it comes to agreements between human beings. But when it comes to God's covenant with us, we need a better definition than merely that it's an agreement between two parties. So here's a definition of covenant that I found uh, very helpful. A covenant is a bond in blood initiated by a sovereign God with His chosen people. Let me say that again. A a covenant, as far as God is concerned, a covenant is a bond, B-O-N-D, in blood, initiated by a sovereign God with His people. Let's take that definition and pick it apart. First of all, it is a bond. A covenant is a bond. That means it's a pledge or a promise or a commitment to a relationship. A a covenant brings two parties together in this bond. Second, it's a bond in blood. Now that sounds kind of gory, but let me explain what I mean. That means that it is a pledge to the death. If the promise is broken, then the, the promise breaker must die. That's what a covenant with God is. It's a pledge to die if the promise is broken. In the Bible, this is very important. In the Bible, whenever you see that God makes a covenant with somebody, the Hebrew language is actually that He cuts a covenant. For example, in Genesis 15, there's a story in Genesis 15 about a time when Abraham had a vision that he had of God passing between the pieces of dead animals. God told Abraham to get all these animals and cut them in half and lay them out on a rock. And a smoking fire pot came and passed between the pieces. And that was actually the symbolic presence of God passing between the pieces and saying to Abraham, Abraham, if I break my covenant promise to you, kill me. Just like these animals are dead, lying on a rock. You can kill me, Abraham, if I break your promise. And Abraham, by the same token, if you break the covenant, then you will die. And so a covenant implies death to the covenant breaker. It's a bond in blood. God cuts a covenant with us. That means that when a covenant is made, blood is shed, either symbolically or literally, to show that the bond is inviolable. And if the bond is violated, someone will have to die, as I said. Now, this kind of pledge to the death is really rare in our culture, isn't it? People are usually not ready to say, if, you, if I break my promise to you, kill me. You know, that kind of covenant loyalty is very rare. You might have heard the story about the young woman who gave her boyfriend a picture of herself to put on his bedside table. And on the back of this picture of her was this inscription. It said, My dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all time. And underneath was a PS that said, If we ever break up, I want this picture back. So that's about as far as loyalty and covenant commitment go these days. But not so with God. He is loyal to his covenant promises. So it's a bond. It's a bond in blood. And thirdly, it's a bond in blood initiated by a sovereign God with his chosen people. That means that God's covenant with us is not an agreement between equals. You know, God and us, God and we are not on the same level. God is a sovereign God, and He is the one who initiates the covenant. He cuts the covenant. We respond when God cuts a covenant with us. We respond with faith and obedience. In Genesis 17, 9, God calls it my covenant. See, it's His covenant with us. God pursues us. He is the one who sets the terms of the covenant. He is the one who chooses the signs that accompany the covenant. He stipulates the conditions that we must meet if we are in covenant with Him. He spells out the blessings that will come to us when we obey those conditions and the curses that fall upon those who don't. We don't get a vote, you see, because He is sovereign. A covenant then is a bond in blood initiated and administered by a sovereign God. Is, this, is all this making sense? I hope, I hope so. Okay. Well, covenants are all over the place in the Bible. Now, here's where I want you to pull out that paper that I, that Derek copied for us. If you'll look at it, first of all, take a look at the chart at the top. Um, here is a diagram of the covenants that God has initiated with His people. Now, the first covenant, if I had a a slide or a big marker board or something like this, I might draw this out. But if you will just keep referring to this picture, you'll be okay. Um, The first covenant that you find in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. Now, the word covenant doesn't appear there. But when God created man and put him in the Garden of Eden, it was definitely a bond in blood initiated by a sovereign God. Because you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God made a stipulation, didn't He? What was the condition that God laid down for Adam? You have the fruit of any tree, the one. Yeah, that's right. God said you can eat the fruit of any tree in the Garden, but not this one. Not The fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you eat of that fruit, you will what? Die. Die. See, the covenant curse will fall upon you if you break the conditions of the covenant. So we call that the covenant of works. You notice that at the very left side of the diagram. Covenant of works. In that covenant, God promised Adam life if he met the condition of perfect obedience. And he promised death if Adam did not meet the condition of perfect obedience. And you know what happened, right? You know the sad story. Adam did not obey. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He broke covenant with God. He fell into sin. He forfeited the promise of life and brought all of his posterity, you, me, everybody else, into a state of sin and misery." All of Eve. That's right. Yeah, all because of Eve, is that what you said? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. It was Adam's fault. <laughs> God held Adam responsible for their sin. But the question is, why didn't Adam die right away? Why didn't Adam and Eve just boom, disintegrate because of their disobedience? Well, the reason is, is that God cut another covenant with man, the covenant of grace. And that, again, to look at your diagram, you notice the covenant of works came to an end. And suddenly we now have a new economy, a covenant of grace began. And that sometimes it's called the covenant of redemption. You might have heard that term as well. But I kind of like the covenant of grace because God decided to give grace to the human race and provide a way of salvation. And you and I have been living in the age of the covenant of grace ever since God initiated that with Adam and Eve. Now, the covenant of grace, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 3, and you'll see it there. Instead of striking Adam and Eve dead right on the spot, God moves toward them in the garden in the cool of the day. He pronounces a curse upon the man, upon the woman, and upon Satan, the serpent. And Adam and Eve had to suffer the consequences of of their sin. They were banished from the Garden of Eden, but they were not banished from God. God provided a way of redemption for Adam and Eve. He shed the blood, you might remember this, of innocent animals and made garments out of their skins to cover Adam and Eve's bodies. He covered their nakedness and promised to one day send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. So that was the beginning of the covenant of grace that we have enjoyed ever since then. And as you read through the Bible, you see this covenant of grace evolving and unfolding through several key figures in the Bible. And so on your diagram, notice how the covenant of grace gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It gets better with time as you move through the Bible. So let's quickly go through some of these key figures that are given on the diagram. In Genesis 6, for example, before God sends the flood on the earth, He comes to Noah. And he says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of course, you know the story of the ark and the flood. And the sign of the covenant was what? A rainbow. God put a sign of his covenant promise in the sky for them to see and for us to see even today. Well, several hundred years go by and God appears to Abraham. He's the next figure on your diagram. God comes to Abraham and in Genesis 17 He says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And God chooses Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, as His people. And He promises to give them a land and to make them a blessing to the world. And God at that time institutes the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. So now God is initiating a a sign of His covenant promise to the people. Well, then time passes and then God calls Moses. He's the next name on your list there. He calls Moses to deliver His people from Egypt. God renews His covenant with Israel. He gives them the law summarized by the Ten Commandments. He settles them in the Promised Land. He specifies how and when and where they are to worship Him. And He provides a way for them to be cleansed from their sin, which was basically through the sacrifice of animals. And then a little bit later, David comes along as king of Israel. And God renews his covenant with Israel again. This time promising them that a king of David's line will always be on the throne. Time passes again. and Several hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah comes along during Israel's darkest days when it appeared that God had abandoned his people. Foreign invaders had come in and had ransacked Jerusalem and torn down the temple and carried off thousands of Israelites to exile in Babylon. But Jeremiah gives a prophecy. And that prophecy is in Jeremiah 31, but it's quoted here in Hebrews 8. In fact, this quote from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8 is the longest quote of the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament. Isn't that kind of interesting? And I read that earlier, beginning in verse 8 and going down through verse 12. That whole section is a quote from Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah predicts that one day there's going to be someone coming with a, a new covenant made with the house of Israel. And sure enough, Jesus, the Son of God, is born in a manger of Bethlehem. He is God in the flesh. He grows up. He announces that the kingdom has arrived. He performs miracles. He calls disciples. He preaches the gospel. And just hours before He is betrayed and arrested and tortured and crucified, Jesus tells His disciples in the upper room, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, He took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So what I'm trying to tell you guys is that God has always dealt with his people in terms of covenants. All the way back from the Garden of Eden until now and beyond, until Jesus comes back, God deals with his people by initiating these various covenants. But ever since he started the covenant of grace with Adam in the Garden of Eden, we've all, all of these different administrations of the covenant were under the covenant of grace, just as you and I are right now. Now, here's the thing. Hebrews 8 and 9 explain that the the covenant of grace consists of two phases. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. How are those two things different? Well, now I want you to take that same outline that you were looking at and look at the bottom of page one. This chart where I have compared and contrasted the Old Covenant and the New. And we're not going to take time to read every single line. But notice the things that are true of the Old Covenant. And all of this can be found in Hebrews 8 and 9. It consisted of an earthly temple served by human priests. It was a copy and a shadow. It it required human mediators. It was obsolete and fading away. It was ruined by people's disobedience. It was powerless to clear the conscience. It consisted of temporary cleansing of sin through the repetitive sacrifice of animals. And it resulted in the outward cleansing of the body. So those are the things that are true of the Old Covenant. And there's more there at the bottom. But notice what's said of the new covenant in Hebrews 8 and 9. And each one of these points is a contrast to the points that are said about the old covenant. The new covenant consists of a true temple served by Jesus, the superior priest. It's the reality, it's the true tent. Jesus is the superior mediator. It's new and eternal, it's secured forever by Christ's obedience. It penetrates and cleanses the conscience, and so on. And so forth. You can read all of those yourself. And I would uh, encourage you to check the verses out later today or this week and go do a Bible study on your own of Hebrews 8 and 9 using this chart, might help you to see the difference between the old and new covenants. Now, one thing I do want to say is that old covenant does not mean bad covenant. That's real important that you get that. Old covenant was not bad covenant. The old covenant was good, but the point the author's making is that the new covenant is better. It is superior to the old covenant. The old covenant served an important purpose which was to prepare God's people for the better covenant to come. It pointed forward to Christ. Everything that was in the old covenant, the animal sacrifices, the priests, the temple, the tabernacle, all of those things had symbolic reference to Jesus coming in the future and satisfying divine justice. But the author wants to say in these two chapters, Look at the differences, though. Even though the Old Covenant is not bad, it is inferior. Why would you want to go back to that? You know, what if, just pretend for a moment, what if in order to come to church on Sunday morning here at Grace Church every week, you first had to bring an animal. And I or an elder would have to kill the animal outside the door and maybe sprinkle you with some of its blood and burn the animal on a big bronze basin to cleanse you of your sin. What if you had to do... That's what they did. In order to make themselves presentable to God, they had to kill animals day after day after day. And the conscience was never really cleansed because it didn't touch the heart. See, that's why the Old Covenant was inferior. The difference between the Old and New Covenant is sort of like the difference between holding a piece of sheet music and going to a concert. Which would you prefer? Most of you can't even read music, right? What good would be a, sheet of, a piece of sheet music? No, you'd much rather go listen to the music live and in person. Or how would you like a picture of a candy bar as over against a real candy bar. The picture's not going to do you much good. Or those of you who are married, you wives, would you appreciate your husband bringing you a picture of a dozen roses? I don't think so. I think you'd prefer what? A dozen roses. See, that's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant as well. Pictures are okay, but the reality is much better. Okay. So pause right there and let's check where we are. Many of you are probably sitting there thinking, okay, I get all this. I see in my head the difference between the Old and the New Testament or the Old and New Covenants rather, but so what? (laughs) What does that have to do with life in the real world? How is this going to help me this week? You know what? It makes a huge difference in how you can live. Because even though you might understand the differences between the Old and New Covenants, and even though you might have received the promises of the New Covenant, you and I can still fall into patterns of Old Covenant thinking, just like the people to whom Hebrews was written. So here's what I want you to do. Take that same paper and turn it over on the back. Here's a chart that I've put together that contrasts Old Covenant thinking with New Covenant thinking. And I'm going to ask you which of the two columns better describes you. Old Covenant thinking says there's something more I must do to be acceptable to God. But if you know the New Covenant promises of God, you know that everything you need to be accepted by God has been done for you by Jesus. See, that's New Covenant thinking. Old covenant thinking says, I need a human teacher or pastor or some other significant person to tell me what the Bible means. New covenant thinking says, well, wiser Christians will help me. I need them, but God can speak directly to me in the Bible and the Holy Spirit can help me understand and apply it. Old covenant thinking says, I meet with God on Sunday mornings in a church building. You know, millions and millions of people think think that's what Christianity is. That it's simply outward conformity to going to church and going through rituals week after week after week. New covenant thinking says, well, corporate worship is vitally important. But I can commune with God anytime, anywhere because of Jesus. It's a lot different, isn't it? Old covenant thinking says... I constantly need new emotional experiences and dramatic answers to prayer, victories, signs, and wonders to prop up my faith and convince me of God's love. Lots and lots of people live that way. But new covenant thinking says, No, God's covenant love for me as displayed on the cross and the empty tomb is always fresh and is all the evidence I need that God cares for me. Old covenant thinking says my disobedience frustrates God and He will one day reject me because of it. But if you're thinking new covenant wise, you know my salvation is secure because of Jesus' perfect obedience on my behalf. When I disobey, God is angry with me and it will take a while to get back in His good graces. You ever think that way? That's like the Old Covenant. New Covenant thinking says, When I disobey, God's heart breaks for me because He wants me to be holy. But even when I sin, God loves me as much as ever. And it's because I believe that, that I will actually grow more obedient. Uh, There's no way God sees me as anything but a guilty, miserable sinner. That's Old Covenant. New Covenant says, There's no way God sees me as anything but a saint. Yes, I still sin. But he rejoices over me with joy and is glad to call me his son or his daughter. Old Covenant, if you're thinking under the Old Covenant ways, you're always thinking, if I could only be more disciplined with my Bible reading and prayer. Now, nobody's knocking that. But if you're living with New Covenant joy, you're saying, if I could just believe the gospel with more consistency and at a deeper level. Old Covenant thinking, as I stop doing bad things, I will gradually get holier. Well, there's some truth to that. You, yes, you don't want to do bad things. But New Covenant thinking says, I'm already perfectly righteous in Christ. The more I believe this and walk in humble dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the more He will transform my behavior from the inside out. It's very different. My failures and sins show how poorly I'm doing as a Christian. Old Old Covenant. New Covenant thinking says, Jesus meets me at the point of failure. In fact, that's often the only place He meets me. God's love for me is based on my performance. I know so many people. I used to live that way, friends. I used to think God loves me when I have a good day. When I pray so long, you know, when I read my Bible, God loves me that day. But not when I'm not good, you know. New covenant thinking says, God's love for me is based on Jesus' performance on my behalf. One day, I hope to be in God's inner circle. That's the old covenant Christian. The new covenant Christian says, I'm already in God's inner circle because Jesus lived and died and rose again for me. It's all up to me. Many of us feel that way sometimes. But if you're living with new covenant confidence. You say, by the power of the Spirit who lives inside me, I can partner with God in His work of changing me into the likeness of Jesus. So it kind of boils down to one of two things. Either you think it's all about law, rules, do's and don'ts, or you know that it's all about grace which empowers obedience. Friends, that is a very different way to view the Christian life. And many, many people live under the bondage of Old Covenant thinking. It's all about law. It's all about rules. It's all about the oughts and the shoulds. That's bondage, guilt, and shame instead of freedom, forgiveness, and redemption. Now that is just uh, my effort to take Hebrews 8 and 9 and put them into some practical kind of scheme where you can determine where are you, which column better describes you. I mean, that's a really important question. Do you live under the bondage of the Old Covenant, or are you walking in the newness of life because you know the sunshine of God's love shines through the New Covenant promises upon you? I I hope this will encourage you not only to read Hebrews 8 and 9 and apply the things that I've shared with you to understand these two chapters, but I hope that you will ask yourself the question, Which is my view? Which better describes me? Because you remember the question I asked you at the beginning. Are you discouraged? What do you do with your discouragement? Do you go to the refrigerator with it or do you go to the new covenant with it? Big difference. Big different way to live. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank and praise you this morning that you have come in the person of your son, Jesus. He is our great high priest. He has made the way into the holiest of holies open for us so that we have continual access by faith into the grace of the new covenant. Lord, I pray for each of us that we might walk in the reality, not the shadow, that we might resist going backwards and go forwards into more and more understanding of the gospel and of how much you love us. Thank you, Jesus, that you did all that is required for us to have the favor of God. And we pray now that we will respond to this wonderful new covenant with faith and with obedience, that we might give ourselves to you afresh, that we might want to do bold things for you, that we might want to always uh, share the, the love that you've given us with other people. So, Lord, let it change us. Let it transform us into your image that we might be living uh, ambassadors of the new covenant promises that you've given to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.